find Acts 10 in your Bibles. Acts 10, seek and you shall find. Now, you'll notice, folks, this is one of those chapters the narrative spans across the whole entire chapter. And uh, that means at certain points in the message, I'm going to have to do what I don't like to do. I'm going to have to scan some things and just make some references to groupings of verses. But it uh, takes a little more time to preach 48 verses than preaching John 3.16. But uh, we need to understand this passage in its whole. Very significant passage. Probably one of the most theologically significant chapters in the New Testament. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but... While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. 
The next day he rose and went away with him, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown to me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Lord, open our minds and hearts today to understand your word. And Lord, there could be someone here that your Holy Spirit is drawing to faith in Christ. Like Cornelius I pray that you would open their minds, their hearts, their eyes, their ears 
that today they would believe upon the Lord. And Lord, for those who have made that decision, may we examine our hearts when it comes to partiality or prejudice, that there would be nothing in us that would prevent us from taking the good news to anyone. Lord, work your work today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've just read a lengthy passage to you. I want to ask you, though, to allow me to read a second passage out of the New Testament to you that helps shed some light, I believe, on Acts chapter 10. Now, you just listen along as I read a few verses to you out of John chapter 4. Very well-known passage about Jesus' dealings with uh, the woman at the well in Samaria. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given to you living water. Now folks, we, we know how the rest of that story ended. Jesus told that dear lady about everything that she had ever done and about her sin and she came to believe upon Christ and she went back into her village and told all of her people that she had found the Messiah. And at the end of this chapter in, in John 10, uh, excuse me, John 4, they, they come to Jesus and, and they come to this lady and they say, we now believe not simply because of what you've told us, but we've seen for ourselves that indeed this one is the Messiah. Folks, what do we see in John 4 that is the same that we see in Acts chapter 10? We see a divine appointment. We have a prepared witness, namely the Lord Jesus. We see a prepared listener. There's the woman and later on the others in the village. In Acts 10, there's Cornelius. And when you put all those ingredients together, what do we have? We have the conversion of some people. Now, looking back to Acts 10, Acts 10 is one of those watershed passages in the Bible. Now, if I were to ask you what are some of the main passages in the Scripture that stand out to you, things that we would call a, a watershed passage, you might list out for me, for instance, Genesis 1. 
the creation story. Genesis 3, the fall of man. Surely somebody would list out Isaiah 53, that great passage hundreds and hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus, uh, before his incarnation, that Isaiah 53 tells about his atonement and his suffering there on the cross. Others would point out Matthew 28, the great commission chapter. Still others, John chapter 3, on and on we could go listing out those chapters in the Bible that for us are some of those main watershed chapters. Well, Acts chapter 10 is that way. Now, if you were to go out on the streets of the city today and ask people some of the main passages out of the Bible that they consider to be the most significant at understanding the entire biblical revelation, I doubt that you would face anybody that would say Acts chapter 10. Very few. But folks, it is one of the main passages that we see for understanding the whole canon of Scripture. Now there's two theological points that are going to be very predominant in this chapter. Number one, we see that those who seek for God with all of their heart will find Him. And number two, we see that prejudices and partiality have to be dealt with in order for the Great Commission to be fulfilled. Now what comes out of this passage is the formal reception of Gentiles into the church. Now a Gentile is anybody who is not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. And I assume today that 99.99% of you are Gentiles. Now sometimes in the Bible the word Gentile is used in a very derogatory fashion because generally speaking Gentiles in ancient times were pagans. They were idolaters. But at other times the word Gentile in the Bible has neither a negative nor a positive connotation. It just simply means somebody who's not a Jew. Now remember, Jesus gave the disciples the command to go to all the earth. They were first to go to those right around them and move out in concentric circles. We saw, saw that outline in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses first of all in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so far, with the exception of the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, the ones converted to Christ have either been Jews or Samaritans who were considered half-breeds. But Acts 10 officially records the beginning of the gospel reaching out to the Gentiles. And we're going to see in a moment what a difficult adjustment that was not only for Simon Peter but indeed for the whole church at this point. Now back in chapter 9 beginning at verse 32 Luke gives us somewhat of a transition. Whereas Peter has been the prominent figure in the, in the first eight chapters of the book of Acts Paul is going to be the prominent figure in the last part of the book. 
And so after Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion that we read about last week, he's going to be the main character. But before we get to that, we see here that God is not done with Simon Peter yet. Now folks, I, I know I'm giving you a lot more background today than I normally would in a message, but I want to I remind you of what Jesus had said to Simon Peter in Matthew 16. Do you remember Matthew 16 where Jesus had carried his disciples away to Caesarea Philippi? And at Caesarea Philippi, he said, Whom do men say that I am? And they said, Some say you're Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. Jesus said, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not point this out to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus went on to say, I'm going to build my church. And he said, I'm going to give to you the keys of the kingdom. Now, what in the world does that mean? The keys of the kingdom. All kinds of speculation about that today. But folks, the book of Acts shows us exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus was going to use Peter to unlock the gospel, to open the door to the kingdom to both the Jew and the Gentile. On the day of Pentecost, Peter took the keys of the gospel and through his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he opened the gospel to the Jew. And 3,000 of them came to faith in Jesus. Now, once again, he takes the keys of the gospel and he opens it to the Gentiles. Now, he's not going to be the missionary or the apostle to the Gentiles. That role is going to fall to the apostle Paul. But Peter is the one that God used to introduce the gospel to the Gentiles. Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and so you have a preacher preaching the gospel to men and women and God uses that to bring about conversion. That's what Peter is doing here. He preaches first to the Jew and now to the Gentile. It's just like Paul said in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Now verse 32 of chapter 9 shows Peter traveling through that very area that we read about last week where Luke said after Saul's conversion all of the church in that region finally had a little bit of peace, a little bit of rest. Now we see Peter traveling through that area. And what we have is the preaching and the healing ministry of the Apostle Peter. Two people are healed, namely Annas and Dorcas. Now through Peter's ministry with them, others also come to believe on the Lord. Now all of that brings us down to verse 43 of chapter 9 that sets the stage for chapter 10. In verse 43, the Bible says, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. 
Now that verse shows us that God was getting Peter ready for his next assignment. Because you see, according to the book of Leviticus chapter 11, Jews would have seen a tanner as being unclean. Because a tanner dealt with the hides, the skins of dead animals. And so Simon the Tanner to a Jew would have been unclean, and yet here we have Simon Peter staying with Simon the Tanner. And so God is getting Peter ready. Isn't it interesting how God works? You can look back in your life, I know I can in mine, and, and, and when you get in some position of service for the Lord, you can see probably how maybe for decades and decades of your life, God was getting you ready. God was preparing you for that assignment. You didn't know it at the time, but you look back now and you see that. That's what he's doing with Simon Peter. Now, what we see in Acts 10 is God's ability to reach the lost. And the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is a man seeks God. Look again at verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. The promise of God in Jeremiah 29 is if you seek God with all of your heart, He will be found. Now we're introduced to Cornelius who teaches that also. Cornelius' home was Caesarea. Caesarea is a beautiful seaport city on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. If you go to Israel today, surely Caesarea will be one of the cities that your tour guide will take you to. It is a beautiful coastal city. Now, it was also the home of the Roman procurator, the governor of Judea, and it was the headquarters in that region for the Roman army. And that's why Cornelius was there. He was in the army. In fact, he was an officer. That's basically what the term centurion means. He is in command of about a hundred men. Now, an Italian cohort would have been made up of about 600 men and then cohorts were divided into groups of 100 men and centurions served as commanders over those. They were non-commissioned officers. They were held in very high esteem. Centurions, in fact, were viewed by many as the very backbone of the Roman army. That's what Cornelius is. He's a centurion. And so that in and of itself tells us there in verse 1 that he was a man of courage. Listen to what one historian says about Cornelius. Centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind. Not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and even die at their post. 
So a centurion was a courageous man. He was somebody who was ready to either live or die for Rome, whatever the situation demanded. Man of courage. Also, he was a man of character. Verse 2 tells us he was devout and he feared God. He was a God-fearer. Now, God-fearers were not the same thing as proselytes. Proselytes were Gentiles who had become circumcised, had come into the Jewish faith and become circumcised. God-fearers hadn't gone that far. They hadn't allowed themselves to be circumcised. And so a God-fearer, though respected even by the Jews, was still considered unclean. A God-fearer would have worshipped God as, as well as they knew how to. They would have taken part in synagogue life. They would have lived moral, upstanding lives. And they would have tried to have kept the law as best they could. Such was Cornelius. Courageous man, man of character. Also we see that Cornelius was a man of charity. Verse 2 tells us he gave alms to the Jews. Now that's quite a statement in and of itself because normally the Romans were very harsh toward the Jews. Cornelius had been placed in Judea to stop Jewish uprisings, but in the process he had grown to love and appreciate the Jewish people. He was also a man of communion, verse 2. He prayed continually. He was seeking God. And so again, here's Cornelius, a courageous man, a man of character, a charitable man, and a man of communion with God. But there's only one problem with Cornelius. And what is that problem with Cornelius that I've spoke to you about some recently? He was still a lost man. Folks, you can be religious, you can be faithful in your worship. You can be faithful in your attendance. You can be a God-fearing man or a woman. And you can still be lost. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader and he came to Jesus by night. He would have been one of the main Jewish teachers. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. The question is not, are you a church member? Have you been baptized? Are you even faithful at worship? The real question is, have you been born again? The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins. And there's a day that God moves upon our heart and quickens us, spiritually quickens us. It's called regeneration. It is the miracle of the new birth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Have you ever been made new in Christ? If not... You can be religious, you can be good, you can be moral, but you're still lost. You need Jesus. Nicodemus teaches us that. The Ethiopian eunuch teaches us that. 
And Cornelius teaches us that. Good men who nevertheless are lost and if they were to have died in that condition they would have gone out into an eternity without Christ. You must be born again. Again, surely we're taught that here. Cornelius didn't know Jesus and yet there was this hole in his heart that he knew needed to be filled and, and he's seeking God and Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13 says then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart second thing I want you to see this morning is God seeks men Beginning in verse 3, he says, About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. What's God doing here? Here is a man seeking after God which shows us that God is already at work in this man just like he was in the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. Because you see the scripture says no one seeks after God and so when you find a man seeking after God God's already been at work in that human heart. And that was Jesus' point in John chapter 6. The multitudes did not like what Jesus was saying to them. Remember that was the passage Jesus was talking about, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He had his disciples with him and all the multitude that day, and the multitude didn't like those words. I mean, it kind of sounded barbaric to them or like he was talking about cannibalism or something, drinking blood and eating flesh. And Jesus looked at those guys that day and said, Do you not get it? Did I not say to you plainly that nobody can understand and nobody can come to me unless my father's spirit draws him what was Jesus talking about there the necessity of God's initiation in the salvation process now God uses the choice and the will of men men have to repent and place their faith in him but God is the one who initiates that process, moves on our heart and draws us to Him. Folks, we see in the Bible that all of those who are seeking after God is because God is working on their heart. God was working on the heart of Cornelius. He was moving on his heart and he was drawing Cornelius to faith in Jesus. People don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think today if I get around to it, I'll get saved. Unless God's already moving on their heart. And, and a biblical principle that goes along with this is that when men are striving to know God and are living according to the light that they've been giving, given, God will give more light. Now that helps me to understand something about the pagan. A question that always gets brought up. Somebody says, well preacher, what about the 
pagan in some remote village or wilderness somewhere who, who dies and they've never, ever, ever had the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. Are you here to tell me they're lost? And you can hear the negativity in a person's question. Behind that question is a theological misunderstanding. It's almost like that person asking you that thinks somehow or another that the God of the universe is not just and he's not going to do the right thing. We need to help God be fair. We need to help God be just. I mean, that, that's almost the attitude of that question that somehow or another they don't think God is going to do the right thing. If you think we serve a God who's not going to do the right thing, you've got a problem with your view of God. God's going to do the right thing. But I would say according to Romans 1, they are without excuse. You see, if they had responded to the amount of light that they had already been given, even in nature, to know that there's a God who made all of this, then God would have revealed more to them. And so in the case of a lost pagan who dies without ever even hearing the gospel, the fact that God didn't reveal more, the fact that God didn't give a witness to him like he did with the eunuch or with Cornelius, the fact that God didn't do that is because they did not even respond to the amount of light they'd been given. Because had they, even though that light would not be enough to save them in and of itself, God is nonetheless able to preserve them until he gets a witness to them. We can trust him to do that. He's sovereign. And so if somebody out in the jungle dies, never ever hears about Jesus, yes, they're lost. They're without excuse. If you think that sounds strange, I heard Dr. Adrian Rogers preach that very sermon at a Texas Baptist convention one time. I heard Dr. John MacArthur preach that very sermon just a few days ago. And so the pagan is without excuse and he dies in his sin. But that is not the case of Cornelius. He's a God-fearing man. He's been responsible for that amount of light that has been given to him. And so God is more than able to get a witness to him. And that's exactly what God does. God shows Cornelius the next step beginning there in verse 3. Tells him to sin for Simon Peter. Who stand with Simon the Tanner. Now, folks, you know what's going on here? What's going on here is exactly what Jesus talked about in John chapter 10. You remember John 10, the, the passage of Jesus being the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 16? In, in John 10, 16, Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and so there will 
will be one flock and one shepherd. What in the world is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles. They were not of the fold of Israel. But he says, they will become mine too and there will be one flock with one shepherd. It's just like in that text I opened the worship service with out of Ephesians 2. What is God doing in the new covenant? As Paul explains to the Ephesians, God is tearing down that wall of division between the Jew and the Gentile and he's making those who come to faith in Christ part of one fold. One shepherd, Jesus, one fold made up of Jews and Gentiles. You see, our whole Old Testament is primarily about the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. And how through the descendants of Abraham we have the law, we have the covenants, we have the promises. And then as Paul says in Romans 9 and 10, we even have the Messiah according to the flesh. Jesus in his incarnation was born a Jew. And so the whole Old Testament leading up to the New Testament is primarily about one people, the Jew. But in the New Testament, what do we find? We find the gospel going to the nations. The church, the bride of Christ being made up of Jew and Gentile. As Paul says, the Jews for right now are primarily still in unbelief. But as he says in Romans 11, God is yet going to do something among the Jews. He's not done with the Jew yet. At the end of the times of the Gentiles, he's going to stir them to jealousy and a complete number of Israel is going to be saved. How are they going to be saved? Through faith in Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Whether a Jew is saved or whether a Gentile is saved, it is through Jesus Christ. But in the new covenant, the bride of Christ, the church, He's tearing down that wall of division that existed between the Jew and the Gentile. That's what God is doing here. And Peter is having to learn that lesson in a very difficult way. God prepared Cornelius. Not only did God prepare Cornelius, but God prepares the messenger. Look there beginning at verse 9, what God did in Simon Peter's heart, this vision that he had. And God said to him, rise and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. What's God doing? Preparing Peter. Peter didn't know it yet, but God knew it. Before Peter being a Jew would talk to Cornelius, a Gentile, God had to do a preparation work in his heart. And so God gives this vision of all these animals, unclean animals. Now if you go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, you find that God told the Jews that they could only eat of clean animals. The whole animal kingdom was divided between clean and unclean. And they could only eat of the clean. Two reasons for that. One surface, one more significant. Surface... Dietary reasons. Certain animals are not very good for us to eat. Certain animals, when eaten, can cause all kinds of health problems. We know that today. 
And so God was showing his people how to be healthier. Folks, I tell you what, that fat back and collard greens, it sure is good. Fat back, collard greens, cornbread, and pinto beans. That fat back's good, but it ain't good for us, is it? And God showed the Jewish people that in the Old Testament. Certain things were considered unclean. I don't think that's primarily what's going on here. What is it that people do when they get together? We eat. You get people together and we love to eat. Amen? You read in the Bible about all these feasts and festivals and people getting together and eating. You, you read about the early church, how daily they met for worship and prayer and the, and the breaking of the bread together and eating and so forth. Breaking of bread, of course, the Lord's Supper, but that probably coming at the end of their meals. We love to eat together. Now in the Old Testament, as Israel moved into the Promised Land, they would be tempted to intermingle with their Gentile neighbors the food distinctions they were to have would have helped them to avoid it to have avoided those associations they couldn't have sat down with the Canaanites who God said if you're not careful these Canaanites are going to take your hearts away from God which by the way they did but they were not sit down and eat with the Canaanite, that would have been a further temptation to have their hearts taken away from God. Israel, in other words, was to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. And the dietary restrictions would have been that thing right in front of their noses every day that would have helped them maintain that distinction. But now with God tearing down the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, he's giving Peter a lesson that the food distinctions are being removed. Which points to the fact that the Gentiles whom they considered unclean, God is now receiving into his family through faith in Christ. One new family in Jesus Christ. That's what this vision was all about. And Peter, true to his form and fashion in the Gospels, what's Peter do? He thinks it's his job to correct the Lord. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. Sounds like Simon Peter in the Gospels, doesn't it? Here he goes again. God has to break this resistance down in him. So God prepares Cornelius. God prepares the messenger, Peter. We see also God sends the messenger, beginning there in verse 17. Oh, I wish we had time to go through everything. And then beginning in verse 24, we see that God arranges the meeting. He gets them all together. They're ready. They're hungry to hear. Cornelius has gathered up all of his friends and family. And when Simon Peter arrives on the scene, Cornelius has everybody there waiting to listen to the gospel. Now, Bill, that's a, that's a preacher's dream, isn't it? Somebody who gets all his lost friends and family members there and says, Preacher, come over. We want to hear the gospel. And that's exactly what God puts together here. 
Peter preaches the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. People hear the gospel. Jesus bring, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. Jesus is magnified and souls are saved. Amen. Man, what a day. What a day in a, a house church that day. What a wonderful day. Now, what we may not see so readily, lastly, and I've got to be quick here, we, we see thirdly, prejudice is overcome. Look at verse 28 and then over at verse 34 and 35. Verse 28 says, He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter finally gets the message. He understands. Now folks, as I was thinking about this text, studying this week, it dawned on me. God could have reached Cornelius the same way that God reached Saul. There was Saul on the road to Damascus, Acts 9. We looked at that last week. On the road to Damascus, going up to uh, find Christians and haul them back and put them in prison. And what happened? That bright light at noonday and Saul was knocked to the ground and he heard the voice, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And, and we know out of that encounter between God and Saul, Saul was gloriously saved. Why didn't God do that with Cornelius? Now remember Saul was who? He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He ran in Jewish circles respected, accepted, respected by his Jewish brethren. Cornelius, on the other hand, a Gentile. What if God would have given Cornelius some kind of vision and like he did Saul and Cornelius got saved and all of a sudden he knocks on the door of the church and walks in and says, Howdy, y'all. I'm here to worship with you. What would the Jews have done? at this point still. Even though they'd become Christians, what would they have done? Uh-uh. You get back out that door. You're a Gentile. You're unclean. And so it took somebody like Simon Peter, a leading apostle, it took somebody like Simon Peter to go to Cornelius to witness firsthand himself, to have to learn the lesson himself about God now accepting Gentiles and then see with his own eyes the Holy Spirit falling on them just like he had on the Jews at Pentecost. It took somebody like Simon Peter to be able to say to the rest of the folks, yes guys, God, God has saved him. You see, if we were to read on ahead into chapter 11, that's exactly what took place. Peter gets back among his Jewish brethren and they said, what do you mean telling us that you went to the house of a Gentile? 
being a Jew, how dare you associate with Gentiles? And what did Simon Peter have to do in chapter 11? He had to walk them through all these events of chapter 10 and say, guys, I saw it with my own eyes and I'm not the only one. I had men with me. They can tell you too. We saw it with our own eyes how the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did on us. And the Holy Spirit coming on them proof positive that God had accepted them because at the moment of our conversion what happens at the moment of our conversion God baptizes us fills us with his Holy Spirit Holy Spirit's not some someone that comes on you some you know 10 years after you've been a believer the new birth is a spiritual birth and Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 the Holy Spirit is God's sign of ownership of you it's God's sign and seal that you belong to him and so everybody who is saved gets the spirit Cornelius and his household got the spirit and so Peter says to them who was I then to withhold baptism and fellowship from them and in chapter 11 everybody kind of shakes their head and they say yeah Peter you know what I guess you're right we need to accept Gentiles now it was a tough lesson learned folks you and I have to learn that God is no respecter of persons I wonder if partiality or prejudice has ever come into the mix in your life and maybe kept us from reaching out to somebody. James, in James 2, talks about, here comes a rich man into your church. Everybody knows him in the community. He's well known. He's wealthy. He's got a great reputation. He comes in all decked out. And, and the ushers meet him in the lobby, and they say, Sir, we got the best seat in the house picked out for you. Thank you for being here today. Then some guy walks in. He looks like he's homeless. He's dirty. He's in rags. He's obviously poor. They meet him and say, hmm, let's find a seat for this guy. He kind of smells bad. Let's see. How about way up there in the corner, out of sight, out of mind? Do we ever treat people that way? If we do, God says, shame on you. You've shown partiality. And in James 2, he goes on to say in that same passage, you break the law at one point, you're guilty of having broken the whole. We dare not withhold the gospel from anybody just because they might be different from us. We go to them as missionaries and we, pre we go to the corners of the earth, whoever, and we preach the gospel to people. Because we see in the Bible, in the book of Revelation one day, there are going to be people from every tribe and tongue and nation around the throne of God singing praise to God. I've tried to verify if this is true or not. It's a popular story. I can't find out if it's true. It's told as though it is. I don't know. Supposedly in the 20th century, Gandhi, the spiritual leader of India, came to America because he had heard about Jesus. He said, I want to go to America, I want to go to a church, and I want to find out more about Jesus. And if he is who the Bible says he is, and depending on what I find in America, I, 
I, I might turn to Jesus myself, take Jesus back to the whole nation of India. And think of the significance had Gandhi done that. As the story goes, he came to a church in America. Somebody met him in the lobby, stuck their finger in his chest and said, we don't allow your kind around here. He left, went back to India. He said, I will never become a Christian. I like what I've read about Jesus, but I don't like what I've seen in Jesus' so-called followers. Think of the impact if something like that actually happened. And the judgment of that man who stuck his finger in his chest and said, we don't allow your kind around here. Prejudice is an enemy of the gospel. Is there anybody that you would not go to any group out there that you would not go to and carry the gospel to them? Or if they repented of their sins, came into the church, said, we're believers now, we want to fellowship with you. Is there anybody you wouldn't receive? God is no respecter of persons. This morning, are you seeking God like Cornelius? If you are, I want you to understand that means that the Holy Spirit is already working on your heart. Come to Him. He loves you. Come to Him. Turn from everything you are and everything you've done and look to Christ and Christ alone and you shall be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. You can be reconciled to God through Christ and have a brand new beginning in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. A new life in Christ. Is there somebody Maybe a young person in the balcony. Maybe a senior adult been religious all their life but lost. Is God tapping on you today? The Bible says today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And church, understand there are people all around us, people just like us, and people who are just not like us. People need the Lord. Remember that song? We used to sing it. People need the Lord. He tells you, he tells me, to go and tell. Doesn't matter what kind of house they live in when we drive up to the house. Doesn't matter the clothes they have on their back. They need the Lord. And God's put this church and other churches all around this community and city because the fields are white under harvest.